Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview episode for you. Today's guest is Kevin Bass. Kevin Bass is finalizing his PhD and MD in nutrition. He is a vocal online presence around nutrition. The overreaching theme of this episode is kind of centered around individual and population level nutrition planning. So those of you who listen to this podcast frequently probably hear me talk about personalized or individualized nutrition a lot. And part of that's just because that's where my interest is. I think guys like Kevin Bass and another like kind of bigger, more, maybe more recognizable online presence is uh, Lane Norton are guys who really look at nutrition through a view at the population level. And I enjoy following those individuals because they do a lot of legwork and looking in the data and sharing what we're seeing based on what we currently know at the population level a lot of times. So it can be really interesting to kind of see how, what maybe your experiences are, what your specific context relates to uh, with uh, what we see kind of in the, in the real world of population level lab data, that sort of stuff. So uh, Kevin comes on to kind of talk about some topics sort of centered around that. We definitely kind of uh, sidebarred a lot, I guess you could say, and just had kind of a, a fun conversation and uh, you know, Kevin sort of, uh, ask questions as well. So it was, it was a little more conversational in some aspects than a kind of straight up interview. Uh, some of the specific topics we hit on within that were just like health anecdotes in general, uh, like how those can be sometimes uh, things to be mindful of when you're looking at not just other people's anecdotes, but your own anecdotes, uh, diet adherence and what role that plays placebo effect, like N of one studies, and just how that can be useful for people at the individual level, protein and performance. Another one that was really interesting was iron and heart disease risk, mainly because as an endurance athlete, I kind of came in viewing iron as something that's like more or less sought after, like many endurance athletes have low iron or struggle with iron at times. It's not uncommon at all. So looking at iron through the lens of something that was potentially negative had never really crossed my mind, to be honest, until I started looking into stuff more when there was some information that was kind of floating around a few years ago about uh, like heme iron and it potentially in uh, too much, too much of it could essentially lead to cardiovascular disease and things like that. But there's been some recent work and I think Kevin dug up some like a meta-analysis that actually looked at it in more detail and it, that reflected that iron was uh, more of a preventative from a cardiovascular disease standpoint. It wasn't showing risk factors that we maybe previously thought. So I asked him about that, just some clarification and wanted to hear about, hear about it, what he, what he found. Cause that was something we recently looked into. We briefly touched on seed oils. Uh, we didn't go into it very deep because I think that topic's been covered quite a bit. Uh, and you know, it kind of, it is what it is sort of. So uh, we didn't really spend a whole lot of time on seed oils other than I was the reason I asked him about it, it was because I saw him who Kevin is definitely pro seed oil. And he mentioned that there was maybe some evidence that corn oil would be problematic though. So I was curious about like, what was the difference between say corn oil and some of the other seed oils that are kind of talked about online about whether they're being 
uh, negative or positively impacting health. And then uh, some of the hype that around some upcoming drugs that are coming out like semaglutide, which are essentially, I just wanted to know more about it because it was something Kevin was interested in. I've seen other like online people talking about this sort of stuff. They're just essentially they're, they're, they're drugs that will likely be used. Well, I think semaglutide might already be being used in some capacity, but there's some new ones coming to the market that uh, potentially have some, some usage when it comes to uh, controlling appetite and things like that. So I wanted to hear what Kevin knew about those. Cause I know like literally nothing about that sort of stuff. Uh, but um, yeah, that was kind of the topics we went over uh, dive into this one and check out what we have to talk about. Also coming up, I have an episode with a guy named Carl Egloff. And if you aren't familiar with Carl, he has been really on a mission lately, like actually not lately and over the last few years, he's been tackling some of the biggest, most difficult, most dangerous kind of mountain courses or routes, the summits or peaks, you might call them. Uh, so in the sport of ultra running, there's kind of this uh, also branch of it that we call fastest known times or they'll say FKTs. And essentially they're on routes that you have a real hard time, if not impossible to put a race at. So these aren't routes that you can't do, but you just can't have an unorganized event on them a lot of times. So with these extreme mountain ones, you'll have people make attempts and document them. And then over time, you have a record of who made it up there faster, fastest. So Carl has broke some really impressive ones, including a few that Killian Journey had had when he did his Summits of My Life project. So I wanted to hear like what went into that. I mean, he's on the very different side of the spectrum in terms of course profile than I typically focus on. So it's always fun to hear about the differences, what kind of led them to that. Like, how do you get to a point where you're comfortable going on speed projects up in this like extremely dangerous terrain and have that kind of become something that isn't so alarming to you that you never started, I guess is maybe the way to put it. So it's fun to talk to Carl. He'll be coming up next. Also, I have I'll have like a bit of an influx of guest interviews coming up in early July. I'm going to be presenting at a KetoCon conference here in Austin, in Austin in July. It's that second weekend in July. So if you do happen to be going to KetoCon, definitely uh, come check out either my presentation or come hang out. I'm going to be there most of the weekend. I'll be in the S Fields booth. They all have a booth there and I'll be hanging out there most of the time. And part of what I'll be doing there is I'll be recording likely three live podcasts we're lining up the guests for that at the moment. So I should be able to release the information on who they are and when I'll be recording those shortly. But we'll have a bit of an influx there. Uh, also, just a little bit of an update on what I'm up to. I'm actually uh, heading back to Wisconsin this weekend. Uh, there's an race called Six Days in the Dome that I did in 2019 where I targeted 100 miles in 12 hours. Going back to that event this year, this time I'm going to take a swing at the 24-hour timed event there. So the Pettit Center is the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So they have a pretty cool setup there for just chasing like speed records and things like that, or just uh, testing where you're at. And I've had a, a very hard time with the 24 hour event so far, and it is an event I really want to kind of fine tune at some fine tune at some point in my career. So heading to the Pettit Center to try to put up a number that I can build off of realistically will be like a pretty big goal of mine for, for this coming weekend. If you want to follow along with that, 
there is, if you just Google six days in the dome, they'll have information on the website about live tracking, video streaming, and that sort of thing. Uh, as well as uh, I'll probably have some updates on my Instagram account throughout the day uh, while I'm out there. So if you're interested in kind of checking in on that, those are the places to find that. Uh, finally, if you want to check out Carl's interview or any of the podcast episodes ad-free, you can do that on the show Patreon page. You can support me directly through Patreon, get access to those early release podcasts, ad-free audio, uh, and I'll probably be adding some extra stuff to the Patreon over the summer once I get through some other work stuff that, that'll add some, some uh, goodies for people who want to kind of support through there that maybe branch a little bit outside of the podcast itself. So stay tuned for that. If you want to support just one time or if you really like a single episode and think, hey, I want to support that episode, you can do one-time donations as well through the website. All that stuff can be found at ZachBitter.com forward slash HPO. That will give you the links to all the shows, the links to the Patreon page, links to one-time donation that includes both normal donation routes or crypto donation is an option as well. Uh, finally, if uh, you want to support uh, non-monetarily, that can go a long ways as well. The best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share podcast episodes that you enjoy with your friends, family, and on social media getting the word out about specific things helps me get more downloads and uh, grow the show. So that's another great way to do it. Uh, finally, you can also support the Human Performance Outliers podcast through the show sponsors. If you find something on their list of products that you're interested in trying out, letting them know that you came to them through me is a great way to support the show. Uh, this all the, all the podcast sponsors can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. That will give you all the details, links, and discounts that they offer the listeners. So if you want to check out everyone that's supporting right now, that's the spot. I usually keep the specific episode sponsors to a couple per. So this episode include my friends at Element and Gooder Sunglasses. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in a convenient single-serve packet that makes them a great for bringing along on a run, hike, to the gym, while you're traveling. My go-tos are typically kind of a citrus flavor, or I've been doing some watermelon now that I got those back in stock for my water throughout the day and during, during runs and things like that. It's getting very hot in Austin so far this summer, so I've been going through a little more element than I normally would. I like to mix approximately one of their packets with about two liters of water that keeps it at about five to 700 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of water. And that is a good starting point for those who are wondering about how much electrolytes should I kind of consume with the extra water I'm taking in on hot work, hot days, workouts, outdoors, and things like that. So that is kind of a, a spot to look at, uh, right now. I'll also sometimes put some of their chocolate flavor in my coffee in the morning. That one mixes well with that. So if I need a little more electrolytes before I head out for my morning session, that's kind of the route I'll go with that one. Uh, if you're interested in checking it out, they're actually offering a free sample pack, which gives you one of each of their flavors for free. You can get this if you're a new or returning customer. So the way to do that is to go to Zach or to go to uh, drink L M N T dot com forward slash HPO. 
If you uh, don't get prompted for the, the sample pack, you can use promo code HPO and that will give you that as well. But the link, the URL should uh, prompt you to be able to access that. Um, you can also find all those links at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also Gooder, Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Gooder sunglasses are lightweight, comfortable, don't move when you move, all for only $25. They're no slip, no bounce, all polarized and all fun. All Gooders are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized. Whether you are running, cycling, hiking, or simply spending some time in the sun, Gooder will stay snug and comfy. Gooder is running free U.S. shipping on all order, orders over $50 and a 30-day return policy, one-year warranty, 100% carbon neutral, and 1% for the planet. You can go to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com, no E in that, just G-O-O-D-R.com, and get 15% off when you use the code HPO at checkout. So if you want affordable sunglasses that aren't going to break the bank if you lose them, Gooder is a great option. So you can head to gooder.com forward slash HPO or find the links at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, folks, let's get in the show and see what Kevin Bass has for us. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm here today with Kevin Bass. Kevin, thanks for taking some time and, and joining the show. Thanks for having me. We've been, I think, trying to arrange this for a couple of years now. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to have this discussion. I'm sure this will be interesting. Yeah, no, I've been uh, I've been following you for a long time online. I think it's uh, I really like following you and Lane Norton uh, because I find you guys to be kind of like compasses at least as far as i know like compasses into where the research is sitting currently and i'm interested in nutrition research i think partly because it's really hard to really find i mean there's just so many moving parts and confounding variables i think like the best research is probably has like a ceiling as to what it can actually show us because of that in a lot of cases because we're dealing with people's like entire lives and then we're trying to like pinpoint this one thing within nutrition so you're always going to have percentages or ratios right where like something is like well 70 percent of the time this is the outcome and then like at least you know where the majority is at the population level and if i'm deviating from that then i have to ask myself the follow-up question is like do I fall within the, the majority or am I one of these goofy individuals that falls outside of it? And then, you know, some of it's a lot more concrete than others too. I think there's probably provable stuff that you can basically hang your hat on. Uh, but yeah, you and Lane, I like, because you guys are, you seem to be really, really into the, like staying on top of that. So keeping on top of you guys helps me not have to do that. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I try to, to put out content that'll help to guide people uh, through the research literature, because I believe that, you know, it is a pretty good guide. It's like, it's a solid source of, of solid information. As you pointed out, though, it does have really important limitations. And we should be aware of those too, because you can, of course, take that literature and uh, run with it a little bit too far. So being aware of like what the limitations are is also important. Uh, so it can both tell us things, but it can also mislead us if we're uh, taking certain parts of it a little bit too um I wouldn't say seriously, but almost, yeah, taking, taking some of the parts too seriously without knowing the limitations. So mm -hmm. it's got, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. It's like, it's population level versus individual stuff. And it's like kind of knowing when to 
use one or the other or when when to favor one over the other and then you know you get mass communication it's like unless you're really really specific about your your wording of things then i think like the if you, if you have if you're on twitter and you have a couple characters you're probably better off just sharing what is going to be more broad scope than it is going to be like this five percent group of the population unless you can specifically say this is for this five percent group of the population yeah. and you get into that sort of kind of stuff but i do have a a funny kevin bass story to share real quick if you want <laughs> so let's, let's hear it. <laughs> it it's harmless but it was uh I think this was you were doing like a live stream this is probably a couple of years ago actually at this point and i want to say you you must have been in like your apartment or house or something and uh you had this like this little not a backpack but like a like a, a running vest or pack hiking pack hanging on your wall like on like the the coat hook by the door and i mean i recognize what it was right away because i wear those things all the time and i just like oh kevin must hike or run or something like that and all of a sudden like the people in the comment section were like why is there a dead carcass hanging on your wall? Because <laughs> you had like the straps kind of splayed out. So it looks kind of like more arms and legs. And then a body kind of just paced with the wall. And they're like, I think you were probably talking about like vegetarian, vegan diets or something at the time too. <laughs> Yes, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> he's telling us to not eat meat and he's got a carcass hanging on his wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, a faint like there was a, a a kind of famous scientist who who dm'd me he was like why is there a giant frog <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the the joy of uh hitting record and you're at your house without checking the background and thinking it's <laughs> harmless everyone's going to see something a little differently um but anyway, back to back to the topics, I think like, I mean, one of the things I'd, I'd like to talk to you about is just a, in general kind of dietary stuff where we have like, we have population recommendations, and then we have individual like needs and variances and things like that. Uh, and maybe a fun starting point is just like dietary failure rates and things like that. Because uh, one thing that I more or less bought as uh what I thought to be true was this data point of like that most diets fail. And I think like the number that was usually shared was somewhere in like the, the mid 90% range. Uh, I guess that's maybe not, that's kind of like half the picture. Do you know more about that particularly, or is that something that we can more or less assume is relatively accurate? Um, I think it's fair to say that most people do not lose a large amount of body weight and keep it off. So it's not certainly not the majority uh, and, and certainly the tendency on average is among people who lose a substantial amount of body weight, they will regain it over time. And if we are talking about in the keto space, so for example, there's a recent Vertus uh, study, follow-up released, five-year follow-up. I haven't looked into it yet, but I've been listening into the chatter about it and apparently you know, as expected from people who uh, think that, you know, the diet, the, the dietary approach that they're using isn't substantially different from other dietary approaches in the basic fundamentals, uh, as expected, uh, they keep creeping up in their weights, their average weights, and they, they, the amount of total weight loss they've lost uh, over time uh, continues decreasing. 
So that's that's true, and and only a small, a relatively small portion of people tend to keep the weight off in a substantial amount over a long period of time. But there are some differences between studies. Okay, but first off, before I continue, I will like directly address this ninety five percent figure that is made up. Like I think that comes from some like the furthest back I could trace it. I know you mentioned maybe Lane or Spencer was talking about. Was it Spencer? I think Spencer that you mentioned? was. Yeah, that's I. I just assumed it was accurate. I think, and then Spencer had seen it enough times and was sick of seeing it, so decided to go on a on a meme a meme spree about it. So I was like, oh well, maybe there's more to this question than that. Sure, sure, yeah. So when I looked, I was trying to find the figure. Um, it's it's fabricated, and the furthest I could track trace it back was like in the 1920s in the New York Times or something like, or 1950s. It was like but I could never find like a reference showing that that's the case. And if you think about it for a second, it's also kind of a, a weird, like how could that be the case? Because again, as you point out, there's different contexts, right? There's different kinds of diets. There's different kinds of populations. There's different kinds of uh, behavioral interventions. And each study in which you see uh, those differences shows differences in the proportion of people who lose a large amount of body weight, the proportion of people who who um, regain it and the, the the rate the rate at which it's regained. So I don't think we can say a 95%, but I think we can say a ballpark. Um, well, so I think a fair statement would be that weight loss is extremely hard. Most people do not lose a large amount of weight and keep it off. And it doesn't matter which kind of intervention we're talking about. One of the best interventions I've seen though, um, now you might be aware of this is, and, and this is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, but it's the direct trial, the, the trial where they gave people, I think it was 800 calories in uh, like a, um, a drink form. Right. And then they mm-hmm. did that for, for, I don't know, several months and they were doing that to reverse diabetes uh, and they would have rapid weight loss. My understanding is the more rapid the weight loss, the easier it is to keep off, which is actually counterintuitive. Most oh, really? people think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the studies that I've seen so far, and you can talk to Stefan, I am actually might look up uh, some of the stuff he's written. The studies I've seen so far suggest that the more rapid, the easier it is to keep off. And also, um, of course, you also want to make sure that you are um, building in the lifestyle habits that you need in order to maintain that weight loss at the same time as you're losing it. You don't want to just like crash diet and then be like, oh, hey, like I've crashed diet. I haven't gained any new skills. So therefore, uh, I'm going to just try to keep this weight off. Like, I don't know how you're going to keep the weight off, but you need to educate people at the same time. But if you have these really large weight losses, presumably it's because you see like these, I don't know, dramatic effects and you want to keep them. I'm not exactly sure what the mechanism would be. But in direct in particular, they had really large weight losses among a really substantial number of people, and they kept them off as far as I can tell, uh, a really substantially large proportion of them have kept them off for a long period of time. So I think the larger the weight loss that you have from compared to baseline, the better off you are, obviously, because, you know, it's going to take longer to regain it. Um, And I guess it's probably the case that maybe the larger and faster weight losses um, are going to get you to that point. So if it's faster, it's going to get you to a lower, 
you know, body weight. I'm not exactly sure the reason why, but mm. I do know that there are really large differences between trials. So if you look at some of the other weight loss trials for diabetes, like putting people on like low fat diets, conventional advice, and just giving sort of a bare minimum of behavioral intervention, the number of percentage of people who, who lose up to 5% of the body weight isn't that great. And uh, very few actually get 10%. We're talking people who are quite obese and they need 10 plus percent. So it varies depending upon the trial you're talking about. It varies depending upon the intervention. I think the main thing is the behavioral support, but there are other factors we haven't yet fully um, pulled apart. Thankfully, and I don't know how your, your listeners will, will, uh, will view this, but thankfully we have drugs now that are, that work extraordinarily well. So we have drugs that can take uh, 20% of body weight off within six months. And, um, these are all coming out and coming onto the market and hopefully they'll be available on a widespread basis. In fact, there's even a shortage of these drugs because influencers like TikTok influencers and Instagram influencers are taking them oh, wow. because they're so <laughs> effective at, yeah, even at like, even if you're like me, I'm, I tend to hang around between 15 and 20% body fat. It's just my uh, nature. It's like, it's my genetics. It's, if you look at all the people in my family, most of my family are obese. Um, I can get below 15% and I've done it many times, but it's not the direction my body tends to go, even if I'm eating like keto or whatever it would have done. Cause then I just eat more keto. <laughs> like I just mm-hmm. eat more keto. Um, but like even somebody like at 15 to 20%, they could take some of this as a low dose and then make it easy for them to stay, you know, between you know 10 and 12%. So it's going to be something that changes the game for everybody. Anybody who struggles to cut weight, uh, if it becomes available on a widespread basis, like anybody could take it and benefit from it. So it's a real, it's, it's kind of a game changer in terms of weight loss. Uh, I think in general diets don't work, which is why Spencer, who pointed out that figure, um, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I think he was fact checking it because he, he dislikes the simplicity of it. But at the same time, Spencer like really, really pushes like semaglutide, these drugs that we're talking about, GLP-1 receptor ag- agonists, because uh, Spencer knows that the long-term outcomes for, for weight loss and diets are pretty dismal. So in some sense, it's correct, right? In some sense, this 95% figure is correct in the sense that it's so pessimistic. <laughs> uh, but in the, the, the specific details and the uh, differences in the intervention, it, it, there's more to be said about it. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the, the, the new drugs coming to market. But before I just want to add something before I forget to is like, my, my kind of all initial or upfront thought was always just all these diets, popular diets anyway, that we see kind of floating around there have any sort of staying power. Like they work on paper is maybe the way to look at it. I mean, I, everything from, I mean, the standard American diet works on paper. If you stay within your mm. target number of macro or not macros, but total energy intake and it's, it's like an application thing where like what works in the lab doesn't always work in the field. So now we throw people into the field where they have the food environment. Um, I mean, I know Mark Bell wants a McDonald's on every corner, but, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, that's kind of just an inside joke to your episode with him. So if listeners mm-hmm. are wondering what I'm doing with that one, go and listen to Kevin on uh, Mark Bell's power project. But like there's a, uh, you, you end up having to kind of put your own restrictions in place to create yeah. an environment in which you self-police versus having like these strict parameters that you're going to get in a kind of closed environment. Yep. 
and then at that point it, to me, it, anyway, it's like, if you're going to do that, like what specific diet, and it doesn't have to be like one of these formal diets that we see getting bandied around online all the time. It could be one you make up yourself. It, it just needs to be something that you can hold yourself accountable to. And to me, that kind of says like, we need to have options on the table for people so they can find that. Um, I guess the counter to that, and you can add to these counters is just like, that's a pretty long journey in a lot of cases, right? Because we have seemingly an endless number of approaches. So like, where does someone start? Where does someone ever get to the end? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. And I'll add another thing to that. I just thought up based on what you just said is um, what if, <laughs> what if some of the success people are having on their later diets, once they actually find their later diets is attributable to the failures that they had on the earlier ones, like the things that they learned through that process of trying other things. That's like the first thing I'll say. The second thing is, hmm, this is interesting. See, this hasn't been studied so much. Like we have this idea that everybody responds to diets differently, but there actually isn't, and maybe that's true. Like I know we hear that anecdotally that some people, you know, they try everything, hear it from both sides, right? Usually it's from a keto side, like keto people are like, we've tried everything and then I finally went keto or I finally went carnivore and then I lost uh, all this weight. And then we also hear it from the other side, like I tried um, all the less often, but we do hear it sometimes. I tried uh, even keto, I kept being obese and then I finally went plant-based and then, you know, I became thin or whatever. Um, we hear it from both directions. I'm not sure what the the evidence base says about that though. So if you look at, for example, Kevin Hall's study with plant-based diets, like low-fat plant-based diet versus high-fat, low-carb, animal-based diet in his metabolic ward, and they tried to match everything for palatability. They even took recipes from uh, a lot of online sources, things that are very popular among say carnivore or, or keto or paleo people that fit the template they were looking at. And then things that were very popular among plant-based people, like things that people thought tasted good in both directions. Uh, and then they didn't find any difference in satiety or appetite, which is very strange because I, I don't know why they didn't find any differences is a very strange thing, but to me, it's strange. Um, but what they ended up seeing is that very, very super consistently. I mean, it wasn't the same magnitude of effect, but super consistently, the people who were on the, the uh, animal-based diet, of course, they ate less than at baseline, fewer calories than at baseline, but they ate substantially more calories than the people on the uh, the plant the plant-based. And they, this is a crossover trial, right? So mm -hmm. half the people started on the plant-based diet, and half the people started on the animal-based diet, and then they crossed over after I think it was a four-week period where they uh, crossed over to the opposite diet, so the plant-based or the animal-based diet. So everybody tried both diets, was on both diets, and very consistently, I don't think there was a single data point, a single person, I, but it's not a lot of people, it was like less than 20 people. There wasn't a single person who ate more on the uh, plant-based diet versus the animal-based diet. So I'm not saying that that's the case for all diet comparisons, and maybe there are really important real world factors that are involved. The one thing that I would say is when people say that there's differences in um, response to different diets, 
my first sort of skeptical view is like, okay, first of all, I don't know where the evidence is showing that, but that doesn't mean it's not the case. It could be that uh, absence of evidence is not, what is it? Absence of evidence, not evidence of absence. Mm-hmm. But that said, like, um, I wonder if a lot of this just has to do with preferences, right? So uh, we do hear these really high profile cases of people saying nothing worked for them until they find, you know, the carnivore diet. But I wonder if in the real world for most people, it's just like, because if you, okay, if you look at the carnivore community, the way that they talk about the carnivore diet, a lot of it seems to be tinged with like a lot of cultural and political factors. Like, it tends to be people who are more conservative, who are more like, like not always, but it tends to be like Republican voters. And then it tends to be among vegans. They tend to be like left wing. They tend to be Democrats. They tend to be like bleeding hearts. They're all like hardcore Biden or, or, uh, or uh, Obama supporters and they hate Trump. And there tends to be this like cultural polarization. And I wonder if like in the real world, apart from like people like you and, and people who are really trying to, min max their performance i wonder if like a lot of it just has to do with their with like cultural preferences and and in ways that they think is a natural diet versus a not a natural diet and then the stories that crop up because of that and let me see if i can get a good example because i was thinking about this like for the past hour before the podcast to try to prepare for this um so uh one like okay yeah here here's a great example so whenever i started to do the whole fasting thing i was completely convinced like because of the work of walter longo and the work of who else was i really inspired by walter longo for sure um and this whole idea that you could by fasting uh increase your longevity increase your lifespan and it was an easier thing to do than simply to calorie restrict i believe that and it gave you energy it gave you motivation it like it cleared your mind, all this stuff. And I believe, so I believe that a hundred percent. And so whenever I was fasting and um, I was undergoing that, I was a zealot. I would tell all my friends, you have to fast. This is so important. Like, this is something you have to do. This is like important for your health. I was like really obnoxious about it. I was terrible. Um, I would, I would be uh, just super passionate about it. And then after, I think, two years of doing that, I ended up trying to uh, eat three meals a day and said part of the reason was I couldn't gain weight. I was like 160 pounds. I wanted to bulk up. I wanted to gain muscle. So I said, okay, I'm going to start eating normally to gain weight. And then I started eating normally to gain weight, meaning just three meals a day. I actually felt substantially better. Like I felt I, I started noticing, wow, like I'm like a happier, less irritable, less like aggro person i was really agitated and like aggressive whenever i was um fasting and that's like consistent with the mouse data like when you have mice and you group house them and they're fasting they'll literally eat each other they'll attack Mm -hmm. and fight each other constantly uh and i and i and i just wonder like oh like maybe the reason i believed the things i believed when i was fasting was because of the ideologies that were surrounding the whole fasting process like it's a hard thing to do and yes you do feel like energetic in a certain sense but a lot of that energy is like anxious energy cortisol at least for me (laughs) yeah cortisol yeah for sure and at least for me it was and so uh i wonder if when you're sort of in the hole if you're in sort of like you're in that space and you're surrounded by people who are saying the same thing i wonder if you're sort of in that mind space you can tell yourself many kinds of stories that 
if you don't have the reference point of going back to the other diet and actually trying that, then you don't uh, actually know if those stories are true. And I think we do that to ourselves a lot. I've done, and I'll give you one more story. Uh, whenever I was a kid, I had a, I had a tough uh, time growing up. My parents were, uh, my parents are difficult and I think I was a difficult kid as well. So we clashed a lot. And um, it came to a head, I think I was around the age of like 15 or 16. I think I was 15. Um, I started, it's a, kind of an embarrassing story, but it's also important because it really illustrated for me. And there's a whole bunch of research to support this kind of thing. But it illustrated to me the profound impact that the mind and uh, sort of expectation can have on on how we experience and how we interpret our experience. So I think I was like zoning out in class or something. And then I was also like, I just didn't feel well. And then I started like convincing myself, this is just, it's kind of embarrassing, but I started convincing myself I was having seizures. And then so over time, as I convinced myself I was having seizures, I would, they would like kind of get worse. And especially like, especially if, um, it's embarrassing because it's kind of an embarrassing, but especially like maybe if I felt like my parents weren't paying attention to me or something, I would. And then at some point I actually was convinced I was having like legitimate seizures. Then we had, uh, we had like an EEG done to like check if I was having seizures and I wasn't. So then I stopped having them because I realized, Oh, I'm being a, an idiot. I'm not actually having actual seizures. And let me go pl place this in like an, another context. If you give people L-DOPA, like people with Parkinson's, you give people park with Parkinson's L-DOPA, you can scan their brain, you can see an increase in dopamine as a result of um, the increase in L-DOPA. You can see the dopamine increase, their symptoms go away, et cetera, et cetera. If you do that for like seven or 10 days, and studies have been published on this in prestigious journals, you do that for seven to 10, day, or 10 days, and then you give them um, a placebo pill, you can achieve the same symptom remission and the same increases of dopamine in their brain as you would, as you would give, as you would get when you give them L-DOPA. So the precursor to dopamine, which does increase dopamine in the brain, if you give them a placebo pill that, and you tell them that they're receiving, uh, if you tell them that they're receiving L-DOPA, they'll have the same symptom remission and the same changes in their brain as they would have on uh, L-DOPA itself. One more example. If you give people an immunosuppressant, uh, like cyclosporine, and they have, say, an autoimmune problem, and this also works in rats, too. It doesn't just work in humans. You give them cyclosporine, and then you give them a drink that tastes uh, kind of funny. It looks weird. It's like a purple drink that tastes kind of bitter. You pair those two for say, you know, a week, both in rats and in humans, then you just give the drink by itself. Okay, so what happens is with the cyclosporin, you get this immunosuppressant effect, you see it in the immune cells in the body, I think like T cells do something different than they would normally normally do, they don't increase as much or something like that. But then you don't get the cyclosporin and you just give the, um, you just give the strange tasting drink, right? no cyclosporine, no immunosuppressant, you still see the same impact, the same impact on the uh, white blood cells and the T cells in the body. And this works across a range of different pairings. So it's called uh, 
it's like a Pavlovian conditioning in the context of the immune system. So it's, I think it's called immuno, uh, like it, there's classical conditioning, but then there's also this immunological conditioning. You can actually immunologically pair the system to the nervous system in such a way that you uh, modulate the, immune, uh, the nervous system, sorry, modulate the immune system by changing, by conditioning the, the nervous system itself. You can do this with allergies as well. So you can give people immunosuppressive drugs compared to a certain stimulus, and you can actually reduce allergies through this mental effect on um, this mental, this nervous system based effect that is paired to the immune system effect. And there's a whole field called uh, psychoneuroimmunology. There's many journals in this field. There's actually a journal of psychoneuroimmunology where they investigate these sorts of mechanisms whereby expectation effects and it's not just expectation effects and there's placebo isn't just one thing placebo is a bunch of different mechanisms that we call placebo as kind of an umbrella term uh that um you can you can they study these kinds of things where this expectation or pairing with other stimulus etc cetera, etc cetera, causes these biological these real biological effects and so the, 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 the take home message for me from reading that research from my personal experience, both from fasting and like the crazy, like conversion syndrome stuff I had as a teenager. Um, but also just like my experiences with diets, I've tried everything. I've tried like plant-based, I've done a carnivore, like uh, kind of cyclical ketogenic diet to me. I, I don't know what's real. <laughs> the more I go try different diets and the more i like see big effects i'm like oh like i experience x y and z effect on this diet but then i try something else I'm like hey wait a second maybe that's not the case and the more i question my own experience another really great a great uh example whenever i was uh uh i've been lifting weights for a while and i've noticed my hrv going down over time and my resting heart rate going up well uh, my assumption, and I've like posted about this on Twitter, my belief was that my increasing body size is stressing my heart and therefore my HRV is going down, my resting heart rate is going up in contrast to say endurance runners like yourself who often see extremely low heart rates and um, really higher HRV. I have a relatively low uh, nighttime heart rate in the, in the upper 40s, lower 50s, but it's not like yours, I'm sure. Uh, or Brady Homer, he posts his, and he's like in the lower thirties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I thought for a long time, this is because of the increasing body size, but I took a break from training because I've been focusing so much on my YouTube channel. I haven't had a chance to go to the gym. And, uh, I, I noticed that my resting heart rate was hitting like in the lower forties on a regular basis. Now I haven't even been exercising. I haven't been exercising to like, in, you know, achieve this. I've been exercising way less. It's not like my heart is becoming more efficient. Um, yet my body, my body weight, my body composition hasn't changed much. Like my body weight has maybe gone down one kilogram, two kilograms at most, maybe just probably just like one kilogram at most. My body composition is roughly the same. In fact, I might be slightly fatter, right? Because <laughs> it's I've slightly um, uh, re recomposed my body composition just very slightly. But uh, if anything, I'm in, in worse shape, yet I've dropped like 10 beats per minute in my uh, resting heart rate overnight. So then what happened is like recently I've gotten back into like training again and my resting heart rate is going back up to like lower 50s, higher, higher 40s. And so I attributed, I attributed an effect, right, to an increase in body weight because that made sense to me causally whenever I thought about it. But whenever I actually 
um, tested it not inadvertently, right? By just by like not training, I found out it's maybe just the effect of weight training itself that's causing this increase in heart rate. And I'm not actually sure the mechanism. Maybe like my back, I have like back problems. Maybe like I have inflammation in the back, but I don't actually know what the cause is. But what I can say is that I misattributed the cause yet again uh, because I didn't know any better. I didn't have the experiments. I didn't have the end of one study where I tried one condition, I switched over to another condition, I switched back to the first condition, and I saw the contrast. I just assumed based on the, the available trend data that I had that um, – uh, a certain explanation was the case, but actually it's probably a different explanation than I thought. And I just experienced this constantly, which is why I tend to like kind of throw out my own experience. I'm like, you know, I don't really believe my own experience unless I'm doing a really rigorous, um, I don't know, crossover design where I'm like trying one thing, trying something different than trying the first thing. Unless I'm actually doing something like that, um, Look, I, I still make misattributions all the time. I still am 100% convinced that they're real. I used to be <laughs> I used to be convinced that like supplementing with taurine would reduce anxiety. It turns out that that may not be as much of a case as I thought. I still constantly make that mistake, but I'm aware I'm making that mistake. So what I what I like to tell myself and like what I like to tell other people is like try to lean on what we know from the research because we tell ourselves stories that if we try one thing and then we try back the other thing again often we find aren't true. And I find found this like consistently throughout my life. I also tend to have like medical student syndrome. So during our cardiac, uh, I'm kind of a hypochondriac. So during our cardiac um, unit, you know, I would have like heartburn, but then I was convinced it was angina. And I would go to the doctor, be like, I think I'm having angina. But they're like, no, you're in your 20s. You can't have angina. Like, stop it. It's ridiculous. Uh, are you in your Are you in your cardiac part of your training? And I was like, yes. And they're like, oh, yes. Okay. So like, so yeah, I mean, it. I don't believe my own experience. I know other mm -hmm. people do. Um, I believe it like in the moment, but like I can also step back. And when I step back and detach myself, I don't believe my experience. Mm -hmm. at all i think i'm i think my experience is crazy i'm completely wrong all the time so that's my opinion yeah that's my take on it yeah no i think you're you're hitting on some great points there and i think that's where like you really have to put like an objective uh measure in place in order to determine i mean you always have the question of but what about the alternative if i because you can't go back and redo it within a different approach to a degree but like you know, for me as an endurance athlete, I'll usually use that sort of, since I have a lifetime of data collected essentially from participation in the sport, I can see maybe a little more directly as to how certain things are going to positively or negatively impact where that is. Because if I go out and do a workout and the results are producing slower times, then I'm doing something different that's bringing that back. Or if I go out and produce better times and doing something different that is producing that growth or that, that, that improvement. And I think it's kind of hard. It's probably hard for most people to do that if they don't have like an anchor that they're focusing on that yeah. directly. Um, but to go back, like, I think can I, can like, I ask you? Can I ask you a quick question? With yeah, respect yeah, to that, sure. though? Have you ever? So you went. I think you went carnivore, and you saw like really big like impact of carnivore on your performance. I think you were able to train better. You you had like less inflammation. Is that kind of your general sense? So that this is where uh, this isn't your fault, but like. Uh, I get kind of positioned as a carnivore <laughs> by a lot of people where it's not necessarily the whole story. So if you want to look at here, here's what I can kind of confirm as like pretty concrete across the spectrum of my, my low carbohydrate 
like lifestyle is for 11 years, I followed a pretty strict macronutrient ratio, regardless of what those foods made up. And I've done everything from mostly plant-based within that framework to mostly animal-based. And it's not a static number either. It's not like I'm eating 10% carbohydrates year round. It's a moving target based on where my training's at. So like if I'm in off season or base building, that's going to look like different than say, if I'm doing short intervals, that's going to look a little different than if I'm doing long intervals, that's going to look different if I'm doing like long run development for a race. Uh, so there, it gets, I think people, I get, I confuse so many people because I'm essentially multiple people <laughs> because depending on what part of the year you pick or uh, what foods I'm using to make up that macronutrient ratio, I could look completely different. So like, for example, like what you're thinking of was in 2019, I did a year where I was, I wasn't a strict carnivore. I I think you said you played around and were like 80 ish percent, like animal based or something for a while. Um, that's kind of like what I've done. Yeah. I've done like, like hundred percent animal based, except for like peanut butter. I had like a little bit of peanut butter. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I've never done a hundred percent animal base for more than like a couple of weeks. I've done it for a couple of weeks when I'm in like off season, just to kind of see, like, I get curious about these things. I'm like, well, I wonder what it would actually feel like to abstain from all fruits and vegetables. And then, you know, you, you, you get that experience and you take it for what it is and then move on in my, in, cause I've, I've, I've convinced myself rightly or wrongly that like I found the right macronutrient parameters for me, for what I'm doing, which is running a hundred miles so, and this is maybe a little bit of a sidebar, but then that also confuses people because they usually lump endurance into one category and they think, well, Zach's an endurance athlete. He eats this way, that way, right. you know, yeah. Elude Kipchoge should be eating the way Zach does. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's yeah, yeah. running a two hour marathon. He should be eating yep. what he's eating and doing what's got him there. So like, you know, it, it, it gets confusing. I think when you look at it from like one layer deep versus you know, spending the time to go like all the way into it and figure out like the real nuance of the, the stuff. Sure. Sure. Have you, have you ever gone back like to the, to the bad way and then saw your times degrade again, like, and then like switch back and then it's very clear. Have you ever switched back and tried the, the, the bad, the quote unquote bad way? Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't even call it bad. So I try, I, I probably have in the past. Like if, if you go back, you know, I'm, I'm like anybody, like, you know, when I first, first tried low carb, it was like, it was, it worked well enough for me where I was like, Oh, wow, this is awesome. I, you know, part of me was like, maybe this is good. I found this and like the competition doesn't know about it, you know, that type of mindset. And then like, as I got into it more, I got away from kind of like a demonization of certain food groups and things like that. And more looked at them as like, okay, these are tools that Mm -hmm. can be useful. I need to find how they fit into my specific lifestyle. And, you know, there's, there's an endless amount of food groups. Ultimately you're going to eliminate some and some of that's going to be preference. Some of that's going to be the way it makes you respond. Like for me personally, like this sounds really silly, but like there's a big conversation, not big conversation, but there's a conversation I have with myself about like the amount of fiber I eat because, you know, I'm trying to run for hours at a time on race day, I'm running for the entire day. And, you know, if I want to, PR by a few minutes, that can be one bathroom stop. So like, there's like these sort of things that kind of make, that are very unique to me and maybe other ultra marathon runners, uh, that maybe are like super inconsequential for the average person. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I've gone back where like, and this is actually how I kind of found out where I like my upper limit to carbohydrate be Hmm. is I got to 
like I got, well, I started out strict keto. Like I went for about a month strict keto in, the, in an off season. And I learned pretty quick that that wasn't going to be the answer for me. Cause when I started doing short intervals, it was like, yeah, I'm not hitting these. Like there's a, there's a much lower ceiling with these short intervals when I'm strict keto. So I started bringing back carbohydrates to where I was able to execute those workouts. Um, I found out, I mean, I could go on all day about this, but like I, I found nuance within that even like I could stay strict keto and nail a short interval workout, but I likely wouldn't be able to repeat that in a tight enough time frame to maximize my volume spent at that activity. So like, if I wanted, if I could be strict keto for a couple of weeks, send me out on a track to do like 400 meter repeats, I I'll hit my, I'll hit my splits. No problem. But if you ask me to go back and do that twice per week for four weeks in a row, there's going to be a point where all of a sudden I start to suffer. So I started bringing back carbohydrates around those type of workouts, uh, to a, to a degree when I wanted to hit those for me, this is again, where I think nuance is required. So like if I were a 5k runner, that's where I think like I'd have to reinvent, reinvestigate how I eat because now that specific activity isn't just something that's going to help me improve in my race. That is my race intensity. So I'm racing hundred mile races, which race intensity there is much lower, which I can get away with a lot less carbohydrate for something like that. So I need to just kind of balance the magnitude at which that is going to support race day versus earlier in the season when I maybe even doing shorter, faster stuff in order to kind of put myself in a position to maximize the long run development later in my training plan. And, you know, so going through, like, it took me probably a year and a half to two years to really figure out where I wanted those macronutrient ratios throughout different phases of training. And then ultimately when I was racing, um, and measuring things like my fat oxidation rates. So I could figure out like, what do I need to be eating per hour while I'm racing at certain intensities and things like that. Uh, so like when I look back at it, knowing what I know now, I don't necessarily think like there's a right type of say food to eat for, for me personally, it's more about like having those ranges right with macronutrients macronutrients because you mm -hmm. want the fat you want the fat oxidation to be maximized for the super long distances basically yeah so like when i like there'll be phases of the year or like workouts where i'll flex up to say like 20 30 percent of my intake from carbohydrate and even that is deceiving because it's more like 20 to 30 percent of the energy i metabolized that day is going to be a little bit different because uh, you know, I might have a day where I'm doing like a 30 plus mile long run and I might have a rest day that following day. So I might eat more grams of carbohydrate that day where I'm doing that long run. And on paper, it looks like a higher percentage, but I'm also probably running a calorie deficit that day. Cause I'm likely not going to meet my energy needs for that day, but I'm having a rest day the next day. So I'm going to overcompensate on that day. And on that day, I might do like a little bit lower carbohydrate since I'm not putting my body through any sort of glycolytic activity. And then when you look at it through a two day window, it, the, the percentages kind of shift a little bit again. So it is, kind yeah. of, I mean, I'm just such like, I mean, ultra marathoning is such a small sport relative to like, it's not like I'm playing like an NFL position or something like that, where like people would be looking at it through the lens of, uh, you know, there's a lot of application within like even middle school, high school, college kids playing that sport where it's like you running a hundred mile races, you find yourself in a pretty small percentage of the population right out the gate, which makes you an edge case, regardless of what you're doing. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's super interesting. It sounds like you've been super systematic 
with the way that you've gone about thinking about it. I, all I'll say about about that is this: um, your your case is an edge case, and when people talk about their own experiences with uh, diets and and different lifestyle strategies, intermittent fasting and stuff, I don't think that they whenever they like swear by it, I don't think that they've usually approached it with that level of rigor. So the level of rigor that you brought to it is, um, it's like a, you've been like a scientist or an engineer, really, right? You've been engineering your diet to achieve a certain goal. You've been uh, iteratively improving or changing depending upon the outcomes that you're getting based on what the inputs are. And uh, you've come to uh, a really fine-grained understanding of what that is. A lot of people, when they swear by their diets, and this is just the thing that I, you know, a lot of people, when they do it, they, I don't think that most people have that kind of fine-grained mentality, that kind of engineer's mentality whenever they've approached it. So that's the only comment I'd make. I, and I do think it's super cool what you've done, and I think that um, – Everybody should, everybody should do that. Everybody should have that mentality whenever they decide they want to make strong claims about what a diet does or doesn't do, like on the internet. Everybody should have that mentality because then we'd have a much better uh, discourse around and discussion around uh, nutrition. So that's all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those kind of weird things where you almost have to analyze everyone at such a, and this is where maybe I get in a little bit of trouble when I talk about individual versus population nutrition is like, you know, I'm a big fan of individual nutrition because it's like, it's what I did. Uh, and, but I also understand the degree to which I did it was for a purpose, very specific to performance at ultra marathon distances. And to a degree to me too, because, you know, I see, it's not like, this is the other thing. And some of this is probably like, you know, I've been on Joe Rogan a couple of times. So you have this scenario where people who have no clue anything about ultra marathoning, I'm like one of their only points of reference to it. So they maybe assume, well, everywhere ultra runners eating like Zach. I mean, we saw this with Scott Jerk too, is a really popular vegan uh, plant-based ultra marathon runner where, you know, he got very popular for, for, for a while. I mean, still is. Uh, and then people who had knew nothing about ultra running other than that Scott Jerk was like, well, all ultra runners are just vegans. So like, that's not true either. <laughs> like it's probably a fairly similar percentage to the average population. Uh, most ultra runners are just eating whatever they kind of want to eat and running a ton. <laughs> do, you, do you think Scott, do you think Scott Jurek would, uh, would be better if he was eating the way you're eating or, or had the approach towards food that you have? Do you think he'd be a faster ultra marathoner? Maybe I, uh, I shouldn't ask this. We don't have to. No, it's fine. Part of the- <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I think, uh, so where I'd have to look. So here's the thing, Scott, Duh, and he he's open about this, but he spends a ton of time with food prep and stuff to the degree where like some people may criticize or they may say like, well, nobody's going to go through all that detail that Zach did to get to where he did in terms of determining where his stuff is. And that's the average person's probably not like, I mean, I do this for a living to a degree. So like, you know, the part of it, I'm very much incentivized to find the answers to these questions. Whereas the average person who's doing it to like, cause they enjoy running, they enjoy the community but they also have a real job, a family and all these other things coming on. They're, they're probably not going to be able to, you know, Scott's in the same boat as I am where like, if he needs to spend hours per day preparing his food and making sure he has all the right balances in the types of plant proteins and things like that, he's going to be able to do it. Uh, So he's not going to be going like, he's not rolling up into the grocery store and buying a bunch of plant-based burgers and just calling it good. Like (laughs) he's actually formulated it. Uh, So I think like, 
it, like, I don't know that Scott would necessarily do better on my approach. I think uh, it's Scott. I think Scott probably found his potential because he paid attention to his nutrition versus <clears throat> just not paying attention to it at all. Um, I mean, the criticism people give him is he came off of like, I think a relatively poor diet when he went into, so if I, if I could go back and have Scott do something differently, and I'm sure he asked himself the same question would be like, could I go from a bad diet to a relatively decent diet and then a vegan diet and see where that all happens? Um, one thing I'm thankful I did is I, I transitioned from a very crappy diet in my high school. I mean, like any high school boy, for the most part, you know, I was just you know, eating whatever I could get my hands on for the most part. And then in like college years is when I started paying attention to nutrition. And I very much formulated a very like kind of appropriate endurance based whole food, mostly uh, kind of diet with like, you know, the exception of, I understood my energy demands were high. So there was some placement for like more refined things and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, there still is today uh, because of that same exact reason. Uh, so I did have like roughly, let me think, I think I've started paying attention to nutrition probably when I was like 19 or 20. And then I switched over to low carb from moderate to high carb when I was about 25. So at least I had some foundation in what would be considered a well-formulated moderate to high carbohydrate diet before I switched over. Um, but I mean, there's, there's like, we've been talking about, there's a countless number of other things I could have done. So like any criticism I could have for Scott, he could probably levy against me and he'd be right. And well, I mean, didn't you say that you started from a bad diet, then you found a reasonable whole foods diet then you went from that diet to a more carbohydrate. Well, then you went from that diet to a, a, a carnivore ish diet. Mm -hmm. Then you went to a more balanced understanding of, of how different things were tools. And then you fine tune things. I mean, yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it almost sounds like for Scott, he went from I'm like, I'm like taking your side, like or <laughs> if you have, if there is a side, but like, it almost sounds like for him, he went from a, a poor diet to like a really good, well-balanced vegan diet, but he hasn't actually tried this whole carbohydrate restriction thing. Maybe he would see, this is my feeling based on what you've said and based on actually the stuff I've read in the literature, right? For ultra marathoners, this whole idea of fat adaptation might be like uniquely beneficial, especially to ultra marathoners. I wonder if, if he tried, if he went from what he's doing right now, which is already like making him a great, a great uh, performer. If you like fine, fine tuned it more in the direction of a lower carbohydrate intake, I wonder if you'd see even more benefit and become even a better uh, athlete than before. I'm not saying he would, and I'm not saying that you're saying that he would, but I wonder if, if that's the case. And, and it goes back to what, what I was saying before. Like if we don't try you know, crossing over to the different things. And, and it almost seems like we kind of agree. It's like, we don't try crossing over to the different things that we think are bad, quote unquote, then we can often get stuck in ideologies about what's good um, because our minds are closed. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I wonder if Scott would, would, it's so funny. Because uh, well, I'm often known to be like an advocate of plant-based diets. I love plant-based diets, but I, at the same time, based on what you're saying, based on what I understand, I wonder if he could... Uh, open his mind more and find even more that could enhance his performance. I'm not saying that that's the case, but he hasn't tried. It sounds like. So I think the biggest limitation for that, for, for him versus what I'm doing is I bet if, if we could come up with like a scale of like extremes where I would put like strict carnivore on one end and strict raw vegan on the other or something like that, or maybe even fruitarian on the other, uh, 
then like everyone kind of falls somewhere on that. Scott's probably a little more extreme than I am towards one end of the spectrum, which I got could, it. that could potentially give us because, because basically, you know, I'm, I control my macronutrients, but I'm pretty open right. to what includes it. So there's really nothing that's completely off the table for me versus but he's Scott, an ethical the, vegan. Exactly. Every animal product yeah. on earth is off the table yeah, for yeah. him, which eliminates a huge portion of the options where, you know, like, like, like the comparative would be like, like table sugar, I guess would be what the keto carnivore person would probably be like, would demonize the most maybe. And I can still include that. I'm just careful about how much and the timing of it when I do it and how I use it and stuff like that. So, uh, yes, there wouldn't be a scenario where like, if Scott knew like, oh, that strip of bacon would actually help me get to the finish line faster. He's right. eating that strip of bacon. Whereas if I'm at mile 80 in a race and it's like, oh, that, you know, that tablespoon of sugar is going to get me to the finish line faster. And there's not going to be any other detriment, like de any bad effects from it, then I'm, I'm taking that, <laughs> that tablespoon of table sugar. So that's, right. I guess, where you yeah. can maybe place it. Yeah. 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 There's a, Fair enough. Fair enough. So, well, okay. Well, I mean, just to be, I mean, yeah. So maybe uh, he's, he has that limitation, but then he can't, well, then we can't say therefore that his diet is what's making him great. Right. Right. We I think what's just, making, maybe he's just, maybe he's just great by himself. Yeah. He definitely he is. Happens to, yeah. So. <laughs> but I think like where, where I was going before we introduced Scott, <laughs> thanks Scott for joining the podcast. <laughs> 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 was uh like I think like where I tried to be or, or one of the reasons I think I, I try to be open about this versus like this or stay away from being like okay I found the silver bullet for ultra runners and everyone should just get on board with me and sell it that way I mean I if I did I'm I it would probably be very marketable and I, I would make more money doing it that way but like it's just not the case because I think like there's so much more to consider outside of just what happened to me and part of it is just clear in the data from the sense that like, i mean there's people winning and breaking records and some of the best in the sport are following a moderate high carbohydrate diet so clearly but you aren't know, you aren't you number one so ultra running is so weird where like if you it's different from like other disciplines where like if we took like the five kilometer or something like that it's really controlled like everyone's kind of doing the exact same thing in ultra running you have everything from like 50 kilometers up to these like multi-day events and then they're on mm. tracks they're on trails they're in mountains so you get like disciplines that are so far from one another where here's an example there's a guy uh named mark hammond he's been third place at the western states 100 twice in a row which is one of the most competitive 100 milers in the world uh then uh like i i raced him at western states one year um and this isn't a bet uh, an ideal comparison because there's obviously like individual days like did he have a great day and i had an okay day and that sort of thing is like he beat me by like well over an hour on that course mm. literally less than a year later we both run on a track for 100 miles and i'm well over an hour ahead of him so it's mm. like all we changed was the terrain like we didn't change mm. anything else and so there's this huge like there so it's like i've had world records um, and I've run really fast and on different courses and I have done a lot of variants. So like people who look at my resume, I mean, they'll see like a blend of trail, mountain road track and that sort of stuff. But most people are going to focus on a specific discipline 
and kind of be like really good at that. And that's kind of where the sport has grown a lot. I mean, partly thanks to Scott Jurek, actually. So uh, um, you do have a lot less of uh, people like, so Scott's like a generation ahead of me, essentially. Like he was kind of retiring when I was getting into the sport. And back when Scott was running, like you kind of did everything a little more because the fields were a lot less competitive back then. Now, if you want to be on podiums, you more, most people have to kind of pick, you know, what do I really want to train for and specifically get good at, or someone else is going to do that and then beat them out. Um, I mean, it's the same trajectory with any sport, really, when you look at it, the history of it for the most part. Um, But yeah, so like, 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 I'm, I'm definitely someone who will be, who's considered like a great ultra runner and my results and resumes would reflect that. But then there's, there's probably, there's literally hundreds of other guys who have really great resumes too, that you can make an argument for as being, um, the best in the sport. So like it gets really kind of interesting there and, and not to go down too far of a rabbit hole here, but then you have the difference between like does what I do, is that uniquely good for the hundred mile distance? What if I was trying to do a 50 K, which is basically a marathon, you know, in which case I'm probably going to have to do things differently nutritionally than I am for a hundred mile race. Uh, or if you want to go the other way, 200 plus mile races, you know, is that an application where now I can be strict ketogenic and maybe benefit from it? Uh, or some of these events, they actually have like, you're responsible for your, all of your supplies and all of your fuel over the course of the event. You know, now it's an application where like, yeah, do you want maximum fat oxidation rates for something like that? You might. And, but when you can have an aid station every five miles, maybe you don't because you have access to carbohydrate on course and things like that. So there's just a ton of, ton of nuance within the sport to where it makes it kind of really hard to look at me and say, we need to project this dietary approach onto everybody because it worked for Zach, if that makes sense. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at Element and Gooder Sunglasses. Element makes a great electrolyte supplement and right now they are giving away a free sample pack that's one of each of their flavors. Gooder is giving you 15% off your orders with your promo code HPO. Head to the show notes or to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for links, details, and discount options. Yep, yep. But but I do wonder whether you did tap into something that's fundamental to human physiology in such a way that it is apl- applicable to people who are trying to do something similar as what you're trying to do. I do wonder. I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case. I guess we don't know. But I wonder if, if, if that might be the case. So Yeah. And I mean, here's what I do. I try to replicate my experience uh, like the, I think, and we can go back to some of this because of, like some of this we were talking about a little bit before, but like. I, what I try to do is I try to take what I think are the real big wins for almost anybody from my experience and use those and try not to overemphasize the things that could potentially be like unique to me or things that I assume are working, but I can't really put a real hard, tangible uh, position on. So my, my general approach, because I coach too. So like people come to me and they want the programming side of things. And sometimes they're interested in the nutrition side. And to some degree, an ultra marathon coach has some nutritional application because they're going to, the, your athletes are going to have to eat while they're running. So they're, you're at least going to talk about that side of the equation, but the, where I, where I try to kind of make sure I'm not misleading people is 
we start where they're at. So most people are coming to me on a moderate carbohydrate diet. Cause that's just what most people are going to do. Uh, generally, like we looked at population numbers, like what percentage of the population do you think have a moderate or higher carbohydrate intake? It's, it's gotta be like North of 70, 80%, I would imagine if not higher. Um, so most people coming to me, they have a foundation in that. So we look for a reason to change, or we, we don't look for a reason to change just for the sake of changing. We, we see, well, how does this work for you? So if I'm having someone who, um, like the estimates are that someone on a moderate carbohydrate diet would need about 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour in a single day ultra marathon event. So if that person comes to me and they're like, I've been running these races for a couple of years and I always get stomach issues. I'm puking, I'm shitting my pants. <laughs> this, that, the other thing, you know, when I try to get up to 50 grams or 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour to me, that's like a, like, that's an application where we need to improve your fat oxidation rates. So you don't have to consume that much carbohydrate, or we need to find a way that you're able to consume that much carbohydrate on race day. And for me, that's usually the starting point. Um, I'll get people from time to time where they're just really interested and they want to experiment They're curious. And like, if, if I, I, I tell them, I usually up front, I'm like, well, we, we can, like, if you want to try it, we can certainly try it. Uh, but, um, I don't see any like compelling signs for you to change purely from a performance standpoint. So some of it's just about trying to be like as honest as you can with the information you have and, and, and not intentionally mislead, I guess, is the way to look at it. Is that because mainly because you focus on other things and then sort of nutrition is sort of one of the last things you would want to focus on as far as like, like say carbohydrate restriction would be concerned. Like you want to just kind of keep everything the same and then, you know, simply like getting in the right kind of training program is probably more important. Yeah. Than, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. for sure. And I mean, that's really where my expertise is too. So like, you know, like I'm, I'm experienced in that. Like, that's what I know that. Whereas the nutrition side of things, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not like a dietitian. I'm not a PhD MD or anything like that. So it's like, I try to be, cause I mean, all people come to me a lot with like, they'll want nutritional programming and I'll usually follow up with like, are you looking for just like, are you interested in learning my approach? Cause if they just want to learn my approach and how I do it and why I do it, that I can absolutely share with them. But if they want me to sit down and like, say, all right, here, we, here's the, like, you're going to eat X number of grams of this X number of grams of that, like literally do what a dietitian is supposed to do that. I'm not really going to do just because for one, I don't have the experience to really do it properly. And two, uh, it would just not be something I'm super interested at this point anyway. So there's some of that. And then there's the other thing of part of it is like, I do have this, like, I don't like the feeling of like, if I, if I tell someone to do something for sure and guarantee a result, and then they get like the opposite result, like that doesn't feel good either. So like, maybe it's like a reverse of like the, the feeling you get, if you get some attention or something like that, it's like, it's like the negative side of that. You don't necessarily want that either. Cause it doesn't feel good as a person at the human level, I think. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Super interesting. It's super interesting how passionate you are about the, the, the way that you've approached diet for yourself, but then you're still like, you're still a little bit more hesitant about other people. It's, you, it sounds like you really do believe that to some extent it is very bio-individual 
and and so you're a little less confident you're like you're less you're more confident that there's kind of i wouldn't say universal training principles but like probably some somewhat universal training principles that you can hone in and apply to everybody at least um at least some overall concepts that you have to probably take and apply maybe slightly differently to each situation seems like you're more confident about that than you are about the nutrition side and i find that interesting yeah 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 and i just i just think like i guess at the programming side of things it's this way too but like you have you want there's a different way to program for different distances and it's kind of like we were talking about before yeah yeah, yeah, yeah where yeah. nutritionally there's going to be that element as well uh where like you know someone who's doing what i'm doing is going to have different nutritional demands than say someone who's you know, like for you, for example, you're trying to bulk up to 200 pounds and work on jujitsu. It's like, we're, we're sort of on opposite ends of the spectrum to a degree. Yes. Uh, yeah. so you do have, you know, you have that kind of, a, but that's kind of the curiosity part of it too, where there is that like kind of tinkering side of things where it's like, oh, I'm doing this specific thing. What happens when I plug this in versus that? And you know, that sort of, and I think that's probably what drew me to nutrition originally is, was, it was something that you could play around with that does impact performance and does impact, you know, other, other, like the, the way you feel during the day. And, um, like when you, when you sent me that note, you were talking about how, I think it was when you tried keto, it's like you, there was this part of it that you kind of enjoyed, like this calming effect that you sensed yeah, you know, yeah. maybe a placebo, but who knows? Um, uh, but there was also other downsides to it too. So it's like for some person, for somebody who like, if that calming effect changes their life in a drastic way it might be worth the trade-off of whatever the negatives are for them but then someone else who's maybe not that concerned about that or doesn't need that then those negatives make far outweigh that 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 positive uh and that's where i find it really interesting too is when you get down to the individual level you have that level of difference between what is someone actually trying to experience and what are they personally struggling with versus somebody else yeah yeah for me, the, the, I noticed a calming effect, but then again, like I was also told to notice a calming effect. Like I was, keto makes yeah. me calmer. I've read that so many times. So of course, oh yeah, keto is making me calmer. You expect it. Why. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, I, I felt like after like, two months, I feel so lazy, or at least I did that time, but I don't know if that was because of keto or some other factors. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, but yes, I, I agree with you. The trade-offs are different for different people and the different applications for sure. Yeah. For, for muscle building, it's going to be different, you know, and jujitsu, like really anaerobic, it's going to be quite different than, uh, mm -hmm. but then again, man, you have people who are doing like carnivore diet and jujitsu. I think that's crazy. These people are crazy. Completely crazy. That's not, doesn't make sense to me, but that, they can do it. That, that one actually surprises me. <laughs> more than uh if they're strict so there i mean there's there's strict right, carnivore, right, right. Yeah, yeah. and then there's yeah, carnivore yeah. fruit and honey right so like because <laughs> if we're looking at carnivore fruit and honey now all of a sudden like i could maybe even justify like 30 to 40 percent of my calories coming from essentially like uh carbohydrate and in sure. that case i could maybe see a scenario where like you know jujitsu would be Right. Uh, yeah. Especially if it's weight based, like if that if, if, if they limit themselves, if they put those parameters like meat, fruit, honey, and that eliminates whatever foods were typically causing them to overeat. Now they're like lean, strong. Uh, and sure. this kind of goes with the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Nate, Nick Diaz thing you were talking about, where it's yeah. like those guys, uh, you know, obviously, they're incredibly yeah. great at what they do. Yeah. Yeah. But 
shave a little bit of the body fat off of them. And now can they come down a weight class and just wreck shop? It's like scary to think about when these guys are already winning a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they were among the best in the world. In fact, like they, in some cases they were in some periods, they were the best in the world. I think when Nate was doing strike force, I think he was like undefeated in strike force and he was crushing people. He's so good or sorry, it's Nick. Um, yeah. But like, would, if they had like eaten a more, they'd had a dietitian sit down with them and I, okay. I got criticized about this. I don't know if their protein intake was low, but based on what I heard in the interviews, it sounds like they were doing a raw vegan diet with some supplemental protein with a really high potential from what I heard, uh, without doing a nutritional evaluation, really high potential for inadequate protein intake. And yeah, if they had had a higher protein intake as they were cutting, would more of that, um, weight that they had lost been from fat and according to the evidence the research like yes it would have been more uh weight that they would have lost would have been from fat they could have stayed at a higher weight class with more muscle or gone to a lower weight class with the same amount of muscle and then been not just like awesome but like maybe even like number like indisputably number one in some cases so yeah it's um that's the thing and it goes back to the whole discussion about scott like what if you know if yeah. you change other things you know it's like yeah, you can find something that works for you. You can be a world-class athlete. You can be a freak. You can have like an amazing chin like Nate and Nick do and be awesome at jujitsu. Unreal. Like I would, ne I hope they never watch my video and never <laughs> recognize me in real life. Because I'd be in trouble. I was thinking about that when you posted that. I was like, it's like I was like, I'm going to comment. I'd comment on this, but I'm afraid I'd bump into one of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. I hope that never happens. But, you know, like maybe they could have been maybe Nate could have beaten Connor twice, you know, because it was neck and neck the second time. So maybe he could have beaten him the second time as well. And I don't know. So that's, that's the thing I'm wondering is like these small margins are important at the elite level. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah. That's the only argument I was making there, but, but they were a hundred percent convinced and they are a hundred percent convinced that when they go raw, when they go raw vegan during their training camps, which they believe that they need to, or at least Nate does, during his training camps, he believes he needs to in order to fight the inflammation. If he has these animal foods, um, he has more inflammation. He can't train as much. Again, like what's, why does he, does he know that in the same way that you know about your performance? Maybe he does. Maybe he's like tried it and like tried days and weeks where he's had animal products during his training camps and then taken them back out. He hasn't ever told a story like that. Um, he just says like, he followed what Nick does and it makes him feel better. And that makes me a little bit suspicious about yeah. this story. Cause I'm like, that's like a very typical story of somebody who like finds something, they're told something works. They believe it. They tell that same story and then they stick with it. And they don't go outside those lines enough to really know for sure. And that happens all the time. And I'm just wondering if that's the case with them. So mm -hmm. that's, it, I got yeah. a question for you around that too. Cause I think like, so I mean, it makes sense in my mind because like if they're going raw vegan during their, 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 their final buildup and then their cut, yeah. their cut is where I think it's really interesting. Cause like now they're at probably a pretty drastic calorie reduction in terms of what they're trying to do. I mean, it's about as extreme as it gets from like a high performance sports side. You wouldn't see any other athlete doing that other than these weight controlled sports, because everyone knows that's going to be counterproductive to performance. So yes. they, they're in a position where they have a good opportunity to really lose lean mass. So yes. protein is a huge piece to that equation. Then they want to retain the protein, lose the fat at a, yep. a, as much as possible. 
Is there, do you know any numbers in the literature in terms of like with the, the minimum amount of protein you could get away with to stave off muscle cannibalization in a scenario like that? Or is it even, does it trend like even more drastic as you get to a larger calorie deficit? This is a really interesting question. I don't know if we have the evidence, especially at that level, like at that level of performance, at that amount of training, I actually don't know if we have like randomized control trials on like elite athletes undergoing a cut and doing a training camp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we did, that would be interesting uh, because my suspicion, uh, well, okay. So there's a lot of, there's even controversy about the protein intake requirements among people who are resistance training mm -hmm. and the people who are in a calorie deficit in resistance training. I think it's very clear at this point that more than 1.6 grams per kilogram is probably optimal, uh, definitely more than 1.2. Whereas of course the RDA is like 0.8, which is just like probably just like way too low for a lot of populations, not even just people, not even just athletes, probably the elderly as well. Um, but above like 1.6 grams per kilogram, sort of the conservative old guard of like sports nutrition, uh, we'll say like 1.6 is all you need, but there are data points pointing in the direction of more. And also whenever you start looking at like elite athletes in a calorie deficit, lifting weights, training seven days a week, getting ready for a fight in six weeks, like does it increase even more because there's so much catabolism and I don't think we have the evidence for that. If it was me personally, like, like uh, trying to give recommendations to somebody doing a fight camp, uh, six weeks out of five, I would say like 2.2 grams per kilogram, like a one gram per pound of body weight or more would be optimal, but then you'd have to titrate that, uh, depending upon. So are you displacing other sources of calories? So Mark, Mike Isertel makes this point. Are you displacing other sources of calories that are also important for maximizing performance when you increase your calorie, your uh, protein intake too much? So you'd want to titrate. Um, I would, I would shoot for a minimum of 1.6 grams per kilogram maybe even get above 2.2 if you can, but then check and see that you're not pushing out like too much carbohydrate and undermining performance on a day-to-day -day basis during your training camps. Cause you don't want to do that as well, especially since you're in a calorie deficit, you don't, you don't want to push yourself even further into it and undermine performance. Cause not only are you going to undermine uh, your, your, your skill acquisition or your, I, I don't know what the word would be within sports science. Like you, you you're solidifying what you have, in those last six weeks, but you'd also be undermining yourself psychologically because when you're in that kind of deficit and you're not performing well, uh, you're not feeling well yeah. going up to the fight. That's not a good place to be in. So yeah, that's what I would say. Uh, 1.6 to 2.2 and then titrate it. And if you can do more than 2.2 and then still feel that you're performing well, getting enough other energy calories, I think that would be good. That would be my rough idea. And if somebody wants to like, if somebody thinks that they have a different opinion than that, like let us know in the comments somewhere. Cause I would love to hear people who, um, who are in this field who have, who have ideas about that, but that's my impression. Yeah. It's a cool, it's a fun like thought experiment. And the, the other thing to add specifically to the Diaz brothers side of the equation too, is I wonder, because they're also very known for using a lot of cardio for, mm, yes. like, in, yep. Yep. I'm not a hundred, maybe, you know, this, but I'm not a hundred percent sure where they're placing that in their training phases, but if they're using that mm. during their cut, it's possible too that like the activities that they're spending their time doing are going to be also much more catabolic and yep. very little anabolic. So now, 
is their body cannibalizing even more muscle in that scenario than if they were doing like a little more of a cardio based strength program that would maybe retain a little more of the muscle during that sort of a cut when they're also raw vegan, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And there's evidence in, um, aerobic, like, uh, endurance athletes, there's evidence in endurance athletes that their protein needs are very similar for bodybuilders as far as the protein turnover is concerned in those kinds of, uh, situations. So, you know, again, all the more <laughs> to justify more protein to maintain the body composition, um, since they are in the deficit and they are potentially having that high level of protein turnover. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I, I want to go back probably about an hour at this point <laughs> and touch on something that, that you had brought up that I thought was really interesting. Cause you were talking about how you get this, uh, you, you like, you like you get into a dietary kind of cult or tribe yep. and that leads you to make claims that, you want to be true that aren't necessarily true that you believe you're, you probably actually believe they're true in a lot of cases, yeah. but yeah. they're not necessarily playing out in your results, but you're ignoring that. Um, <laughs> or you, or you're just interpreting your experience. You don't have a, a frame of reference right. enough because you're mm -hmm. so deep into what you're doing. Yeah. yeah that you're not even mm -hmm. aware of, you know, the, the relative. So it's, it's an interesting, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. You're, you're sac sacrificing maximization for moderate moderation, I guess in to, or maybe worse but one thing i was thinking about when you were saying that was like so you had i think there's like i mean this is this is this makes it even more like religion right because it's like when you look at religion you have a scenario where there's downsides to having like that kind of cult belief uh or a potential cult belief but then there's also these like kind of like societal potential benefits where like you also have like this kind of self-imposed set of rules that are going to make you like likely less likely to go and like rob a bank or like, you know, you, you lie to us or you feel bad about doing those things. So you sort of self-police. So mm -hmm. like with some of these like tribes and dietary cult type things, it's like, I think like the, the positive there is it creates a self-policing that feels like there's another, like, it feels like you're building and coaching without really having it there. And cause you're going to follow the rules to a degree because you okay. don't want to, you, you, you don't want to like go against the message of the protocol or the tribe. Like you actually, you're invested in it. Right. Right. Having being a little too loosey goosey where it's like, oh yeah, maybe I'll eat that package of Reese's pieces cups because like, you know, no one's, no one's going to care. No one's looking, no one's going to do anything about right, it. Right. 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 Yeah. So like getting that as being actually an adherence tool, the cult, like, mentality actually yeah. helping you with adherence yeah so how do you get the good yeah. half without the bad half is <laughs> yeah yeah that's a great question and i think we both have <laughs> i think we both probably end up on the same side of that question is probably you can't disentangle that right mm -hmm. i mean yeah because yeah. cults like like nutrition cults or like religion it always ends up like the more zealous you end up the more like potential you have for going off the deep end and things becoming um like too extreme but then at the same time if you have that kind of zealous mentality you know you could do some good things with it i don't know how you can get um yeah that's a really great question it's a it's a fantastic question because it really gets the heart of kind of like one of the downsides of this whole just to do everything in moderation kind of thing. Yeah, you can, but then like, you may not have any motivation, you know, right. like you may not have like that push to think, Oh, I'm, 
having the ideal human diet that's going to like fix all my problems. Yeah, if you believe that nonsense, maybe that'll actually help it to fix a lot of your problems because you're so adherent. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that is a problem for the moderation point of view for sure. And I don't think it's a problem they can necessarily solve. Yeah, it's an advantage for the for the for the zealots. So mm-hmm. it's, it's like kind of, everything yeah. in moderation when your food environment is limited to yes, good yeah. options is great. But when you have everything yeah. imaginable under the sun and it's a click away, now all of a sudden everything in moderation can literally be a little bit of everything, which is maybe even worse than uh, a lot of uh, very few things. Totally. We need to go tell everybody to become a zealot. That's, that's <laughs> well, that, that's the conclusion. That's like, <laughs> pick your zealot true tribe. <laughs> awesome. Um, I do. Are you pressed for time? I don't want to hold you up. I know you got. I think, I think we can go a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. I just had a few questions that I saw you post about that caught my eye that I found really interesting. And I, I think the big one was actually like, iron stores and cardiovascular disease, because I actually didn't even know this was a topic up until actually in 2019, when I was playing around with animal-based nutrition and was as close to strict carnivore as I'd ever been. And, you know, I was eating a lot of red meat, so I was getting a ton of iron. And my thought was always like, oh, great. This is awesome because iron is something that most endurance athletes are probably going to struggle with more so than have like an upper limit where they're going too far past it. Um, and then I, you know, by, 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 by thinking about that, that led me to some of the, the information where it looked like, oh, you could, you got to be careful with too much heme iron where it can actually become a cardiovascular issue. But uh, you did some research on this or not research, but some, you looked into the research and found that maybe there's more to it than that. Yeah. Um, well, so <laughs> I was actually making a video about Paul Saladino. He has this, he does these reels and I was going to debunk it. And I, I actually did, I already made the video, but I want to remake it because um, I want to make it more systematic. But like one of the things I was looking into is like, I was trying to find what is, okay. So he often demonizes vegetables. He's like, vegetables are bad. Like animal foods are good. So buy, like, he doesn't say, buy, he doesn't say buy my supplements, but like <laughs> he has the supplements behind him. um in the videos um and and what i was trying to do is i was like okay yeah maybe there's some downsides to vegetables let's like grant that potential possibility and and actually there are like if you eat too much like there are certain compounds that can undermine certain biological processes but what about animals are there not any toxins in animal products i don't know like maybe there's some toxins in animal products as well and so with respect to like vitamin a there's there's some signal with respect to copper but then i remembered iron in particular oh yeah like don't i know from all the vegans and all the plant-based people and kind of like almost seems like the the orthodoxy in nutrition is that uh heme iron and iron excess iron is bad for cardiovascular disease disease and i guess the the um the rationale behind that is is the old uh, uh, free radical theory of aging, oxidative stress, because iron does, I don't know, I don't know the chemistry anymore, but iron, I think, changes from uh, being po- like positively charged with two charges to like positively charged with three charges, I think. And then so it changes an electron very easily and it can promote oxidative stress. And so that's why in the endothelium and in the uh, cardiovascular system, it can disrupt the functioning and cause damage over time and contribute to atherosclerosis. But 
So I was looking this up. I was like, okay, I need to find a study that shows this because uh, I'm going to use this as part of my video. And then I, I found this Mendelian randomization study published, I think, in Circulation. I want to say it was published in Circulation. If it wasn't Circulation, it was another, like, I think uh, it's, it was on the AHA website, the American Heart Association website. It's one of those families of journals. So it's, a, it's not a, a bad journal. It's a good journal. There was a Mendelian randomization study, uh, which just says, let me see if I can explain it really easily. It just says, if you take everybody, so everybody has different variants in their, um, their genetics that predispose them to different traits. So some people have variants in these iron related, iron metabolism related genes that predispose them to um, higher or lower levels of iron in the blood, whether it be in the form of, uh, of iron itself or ferritin or transferrin or a couple other markers of iron in the body or in, in the blood. And among those people who have higher levels, genetically higher levels, they have a, a tendency to have higher levels in the blood. Do they have a higher or lower risk of cardiovascular disease? And it turns out they have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. And this sort of study allows us, without actually needing to do the randomized controlled trial, supplementing some people with iron and then not supplementing other people with iron and then checking to see what their cardiovascular outcomes are in the long term. It allows us to, without necessarily doing that trial, to, uh, to see the same things. So if you have a genetically higher iron level, uh, are you going to have lower or higher levels of cardiovascular disease? And as I said, you have higher. And so that suggests that strongly suggests that there's a causal relationship. It's not just, oh, you look at everybody who has higher, higher iron levels, and then those people have a lower or higher uh, cardiovascular disease risk. Because people who have higher iron levels might be doing a bunch of other things. If you just look at the genetics themselves, the genetics determining iron levels, we see a close relationship that probably causal with respect to cardiovascular disease. So that turns over a lot of what I thought I knew. And whenever I looked at the um, discussion section in that paper, it turns out that a lot of these ideas that iron levels in the blood cause cardiovascular disease were actually from a, a lower quality observational uh, research literature that has since been uh, overturned by a much higher quality observational research literature. And so this Mendelian randomization study is actually consistent with um, the observational literature that's that's of a higher quality as well. So we have multiple different lines of evidence indicating that a higher iron level in the blood and in the body is actually beneficial. And just like you, I actually have problems with iron. Uh, I tend to have like higher levels of red blood cells for some reason, I think is genetic. <clears throat> and I think also I do a certain amount of cardio. I have like above the range. It looks like I'm on EPO. It's kind of a weird <laughs> thing. Um, but I also tend to have lower iron levels as well. And so one of the take homes I'm, I'm thinking about is I'm going to look into this a little bit more. And then if I still have these low iron levels, I'm going to probably start supplementing with, with um, some iron supplements because there's some indication that actually that could be beneficial for my long-term cardiovascular health. I need to look up what the mechanism of this is because I'm still a little bit confused and, and kind of uh, taken aback by this because again, the ideology I had always heard, and I bet you had always heard the same thing is, like, oh, eating all that heme iron is going to hurt you. But actually, it looks mm -hmm. like that may not be the case. And so I'm kind of surprised about this. I'm, I'm interested in looking to this further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I just thought I'd ask that one because I saw you post about it. And I was it caught my eye as something I had, had no clue there was a counter to the, the original narrative. But you know, <laughs> there always is. <laughs> um, 
Well, one other thing I wanted to ask too is we definitely don't have to get into the whole seed oil debate because uh, I think that's been had more or less like in terms of like people want to like really get into the weeds on like our seed oils good or bad. And I, I know where you stand, you're pro seed oil. For me personally, it's like when I first saw that argument kind of come up, my first thought was like, my, my gut instinct was like, well, I hope not because I'm someone who likes to use a low carbohydrate diet for stuff. And I have people who come to me that also want to learn how I do it. And they're going to eventually presumably program themselves or work with someone who's going to program it for them. And I always find like, if they have more options to pull from, to make it sustainable, it's probably better. So if you eliminate all seed oils from, from a low carb, certainly a ketogenic diet. Now all of a sudden you're limiting the number of things you could potentially use that could make it sustainable for you. Uh, but anyway, the, I think you said something about there was potential that corn oil is possibly has is problematic. Is there anything that specifically stood out about corn oil that would make it different from like a canola oil? There's just this one study called the Rose uh, corn oil study. I'm not really exactly sure how to interpret that study. You'd have to ask. Um, I don't know if you ever had Nick Hebert on or talked to Nick. Nick is kind of a weird, in my opinion, a weird guy and a difficult person sometimes, but he knows a lot about, um, he knows a lot about the seed oil stuff and probably could comment on that particular study more. Okay. But there's just, there's just this one study where they saw the signal among people who supplemented with corn oil that, that it, there were kind of bad outcomes. And apparently the, the P value was like really, really, really low. Like it seems statistically significant, but I'm wondering what the methodological problems were for that particular study. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the signal for corn oil is not as good in the observational literature as far as uh, long-term outcomes for like cardiovascular disease and death. It's not as good as it is for say canola oil. The, um, and canola oil is quite similar in its fatty acid composition to olive oil. But if people are looking to be like super safe and like, okay, there's like little risk whatsoever. Olive oil is a good bet. Uh, it's, it's associated with all sorts of good things. This randomized control trial literature looking at, we have the Mediterranean diet, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. if you want to make this, 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 uh, ancestral, sort of ancestral argument about it like olives olives are like the fruits right they're not seeds therefore <laughs> therefore like marxists and and uh, the great marxists and, and paul saldino say uh, they're not trying to defend themselves they want to be eaten because they want to spread the seeds that is inside them to you know fertilize the or you know so for that reason uh, maybe olive oil if you're really worried might be a good idea but it a lower tier uh, sort of seed oil than that would be like canola oil and then if you're like but yeah maybe corn and soy is maybe not as good as canola and it may be related to the omega-3 fatty acids so there's just it's almost pure omega-6 in the corn oil oh. it might be related to that but again this whole idea of omega-6s it's not really well substantiated in the uh in sort of the short-term biomarker literature that omega-6s are necessarily bad and this whole idea of this ratio between omega-3s and omega-6s it's not something that i personally buy but there's that weird rose corn oil study that I'm still trying to figure out. And I don't understand like why the outcome is that it is. I'm not, I'm not like an expert on every single one of these randomized control trials, but I know enough about them to say, Hey, I, I don't understand that study well enough. And there's a potential that corn oil isn't as good as maybe like canola oil or definitely like maybe like olive oil. So that's, that's my thought. That's my thoughts as I, as I'm learning more. Yeah. I mean, we can only conclude that uh, big olive and big corn are going back and forth on, <laughs> 
on the on the oil market. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think like Nick would be a good person to chat to. I think because I've I've had uh, I've had Tucker on to talk about you know his take Tucker, on yeah. the, the negatives of it. Um, I've I've listened enough of Nick's stuff to know like his side of the story, or at least like where where his his endpoint are or as his conclusion is. Um, and I was going to have him on a while back. And I think it was like during a point when I wasn't recording episodes and it fell off the radar. So I'm able to reach out to him and see if he wants to come in and, and drop some seed oil knowledge on me. <laughs> some of his stuff is really good. Like he has that really good article on seed oil sophistry that I, I've learned a lot from, uh, Nick, 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 uh, Nick seems to have a love hate relationship with me, but I appreciate his, um, some of his written stuff and I haven't listened to his debates, but I know that he knows a lot and he's a, he's a good source of, of information from that point of view. And, um, I, I prefer him to Tucker, that's for sure. But you know, everybody has their own <laughs> opinion. So. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and maybe unless you have other topics you want to hit on, we could end on going full circle back to the, the weight loss drugs you mentioned in the beginning that were kind of coming to market in the next few months that looked like they had some promise. Uh, I'm curious about, that and if they have any like like it seems like with everything like even if it's a a rather large net positive there are some negatives or potential negatives that people should be aware of if they happen to fall into the minority um yeah maybe what are these new ones and pros and cons perhaps yeah so these new drugs they're originally discovered in i think i want to say a gila monster it's like some lizard and I'm not sure what the details were, but this guy named, um, I think he's either a postdoc, I think he's a postdoc, or he's doing a fellowship. His name is Daniel Drucker, and uh, he's at University of Toronto now. He discovered, uh, I think he discovered the properties, and then they were turned into drugs, basically, like uh, they were produced um, synthetically by drug companies after this was discovered. But he discovered that there is a GLP-1 uh, agonist. So it's an agonist. I think it's also considered an analog. So GLP-1 is a hormone in the body that's released by the gut and also by the pancreas to some degree as well. But but it's considered to be what's called like a gut incretin. Um, so when your body has food uh, and then food starts passing through the gut, it's released in response to certain certain um, macronutrients in the gut. I want to say it's in response, in response to fiber, but it may be in general response to maybe just carbohydrate. I'm not actually, actually sure the, the details of it, but it's released by the gut. It uh, then binds to the pancreas and causes the release of more insulin. Uh, uh, can you see me? Yeah, you're back. Oh, okay. Could you hear me or was I? Oh yeah, no, you were like fine. Back? You were fine. Okay. Okay. Um, and, but it also binds to the brain. So, so these gut incretins also bind to the brain and this binding to the brain causes you to uh, not have as much appetite. So you actually become more satiated and it actually probably affects like deep centers of the brain, like brainstem type centers. And there's some evidence that these uh, sorts of compounds, GLP-1, uh, actually may affect like reward pathways you suspect like gambling and alcoholism and it's being oh, wow. uh, investigated, investigated in that respect. Yeah, it's really cool. But these, uh, the analogs were discovered in this lizard. They were, they started being mass produced in these peptide forms or not peptide, but these, it's kind of a protein. 
uh, and and now they're they started over the last I think decade to give them to people who have obesity because they first gave them to people who with diabetes because again they increase the release of insulin so you can control blood sugar but if they also have these brain effects that reduce weight um, which they observed in the diabetes trials they also saw a reduction in weight in the diabetics who were given these drugs then maybe they could be given to people without diabetes necessarily but they would also uh, cause weight loss as well, just straight weight loss. And up to this point, we didn't have any good uh, medications for treating treating uh, obesity. We had like, I don't know, top topamorate and then some other like drugs that didn't work really well. We had Finfin, which ended up having to be taken off the market. Uh, I think they used to give people like amphetamines, but you, you never get more than like 5% body weight loss and and to have more than 5% body weight loss was kind of the holy grail. And it ended up that these drugs caused more than 10% body weight loss. And now we're getting more than 20%. So um, the, the the amount of weight loss you're getting from just this, these, this class of drugs, and there's actually another whole class of drugs that you can give in combination with them called these amylin uh, analogs. These class of drugs, especially combination therapy, have... Uh, produced an amount of weight loss in these patients that's unprecedented and never was going to ever be expected for, for many, many decades. And now we're getting it uh, in the 2010s and the 2020s. It's a revolution in uh, pharmacotherapy for obesity. It's going to change how obesity is treated, especially if these drugs can become widely available. Um, so uh, the downsides, though, you know, I'm so, <laughs> it's funny, I'm so excited about them that I haven't looked uh, too much into the downsides. What I can tell you, though, is that the number of patients who come off these drugs once they go on are extremely small. So most people, once they get on the drugs, they want to stay on because they're really controlling appetite. So while the downsides, there might be some negative side effects, the negative side effects aren't too extreme. They're not like terrible to the point that they make people want to stop the drug. In other words, the benefits tend to overwhelmingly tend to in most people uh, exceed the risks. Now it's interesting based on what we've been talking about earlier. I guess the question is, okay, what are the characteristics of the patients in whom the, uh, the downsides exceed the benefits? And that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. So, but what are the downsides? There are things like nausea. Uh, I want to say there's maybe some GI symptoms as well, but I think nausea is like the biggest one. People like can become nauseous. Ah, I'm not an expert about this. You guys can look it up. You can Google it and and immediately you'll see the list of the symptoms. I think there's GI disturbances and nausea. And um, um, apparently if you titrate up the dose slowly and you don't jump in really fast at a high dose, but you go really slowly, you can mitigate most of these symptoms and most people won't experience bad symptoms in this respect. What we do also know based on the randomized control trial literature that's now being published as opposed to some of it was published at the end of the year, all the biomarkers with respect to that are important for metabolic health that we talk about metabolic health, like HbA1c, CRP, uh, fasting blood glucose, fasting triglycerides, blood pressure, et cetera, all those biomarkers across the board all improve as people lose weight on these drugs. So if there's some negative effects, if there are some negative long-term health effects of these drugs, they would have to be through a mechanism that's independent of all these conventional biomarkers, which seems unlikely. I believe it's been shown so far in diabetics, people who have diabetes who are treated with these drugs, that they're getting improved cardiovascular outcomes, so fewer heart attacks, 
stuff like that, and a very significant amount. And I think over the next five years, there's going to be several trials that are going to come out that are looking at these long-term follow-ups of these obesity trials uh, where they're treating obesity. They're going to look at the hard outcomes and see if there's um, the same effect in people with obesity. And it's highly anticipated, especially I've, I've talked to uh, Daniel Drucker. It's highly anticipated that there's going to be uh, really strong robust, hard outcome effects. So people are going to have uh, fewer chronic disease, bad, bad chronic disease outcomes like heart attacks and maybe Alzheimer's and stuff like that as well. It's also going to get better. So if that ends up being the case, then we'll have a situation where um, I'm just crossing. I'm almost assuming it is. I guess I'm, I'm really hyped up about these drugs and, and maybe I'm going, I mean, I, I, all the experts I've talked to about this, <laughs> it could be wrong. It could be wrong, but it seems to be the case that we'll have a situation where we'll be able to treat obesity, the hard outcomes will get better in terms of like heart attacks, Alzheimer's risk, risk of all sorts of different really important chronic diseases, probably cancer as well. And then you'll have these side effects around the, along the lines of like nausea, some gastrointestinal effects that are relatively mild compared to the benefits of, of having a lower weight and having these better chronic disease risks. And hopefully these negative side effects can be um, dealt with by slow titration such that they don't significantly impair people's quality of life. So that I, I'm hyped up about these. I almost sound like a, a, a <laughs> I'm trying to be objective. I, I know I almost sound like, um, like almost religious about these, but honestly, like the hype in the field is at that level. The hype in the field right now among scientists, among doctors, among people in this field is at the level of like religious fervor because these drugs do seem to be potentially at that level, like a game changer. Um, among among uh, drugs that we can give people to, to improve their lives and improve their long-term health outcomes. So we'll see what happens. And hopefully, uh, it seems to be the case, but hopefully these drugs live up to the hype that, uh, that, we're, that I'm currently uh, giving. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds promising. And I think, you know, it sounds like, I'm always, I mean, I was interested about like what, what the like actual processes that is happening with taking this sort of stuff so it's like my my when i first heard like i haven't looked into this at all so like my first uh thought is like well is it somehow changing the like what you said the reward center or the yeah. propensity to continue to eat when you are otherwise satiated or technically satiated uh so it's like you get that weird like psychological side of, of eating that impacts everyone differently it seems where you know some people um just stop when they should stop and other people they don't get that signal the way it, the way it would and it sounds like this is addressing that so if you have those folks who are maybe a little more uh sporadic on that or less predictable on that we'll have a little bit of an easier time with it perhaps yeah it's like if you think about it like uh like depression for example mm -hmm. with depression um people have problems that contribute to their depression but if you can just lift the depression sort of like Mm -hmm. just ignore the problem side you can just lift the depression then suddenly the problems become easier to deal with i think it's a similar sort of situation with the semaglutide you're just you're making it easier to not eat for whatever reason that you're doing it for whatever the mechanism is it's just like you become satiated fuller so apparently people will eat uh you know they'll have a plate of food and they'll just like not have any urge to eat after say like half as much or a third as much as what they used to eat it's like um, for whatever reason, they, they don't have this urge to continue to, to, to eat. And as, yeah, as I mentioned, apparently they're also using it for like alcoholism and gambling and stuff. And apparently, 
Uh, they're doing some preliminary studies in that area and potentially it could have some effects there, which would be crazy, right? Because it's increasing from the gut <laughs> that's then uh, being given in these super physiological levels that might impact behavior across a number of other domains. It's a weird story. Yeah. It's like, I think we have a lot to learn. So. Mm -hmm. Well, very interesting. And Kevin, I want to thank you for giving me quite a bit of your time today. And uh, before I let you go, if you want to share with the listeners where they can find you on social media, website, and that sort of stuff, if you want to uh, give us that, I'll also throw that stuff in the show notes. Sure. Uh, I am, I can be found on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Kevin and Bass, K-E-V-I-N-N-B-A-S-S. can also be found on Patreon if you guys want to help support some of the stuff that I'm working on. Um, you can also find me on have my podcast, which is probably the best place to find me. It's where I'm putting out most of my stuff at the Kevin Bass Show, and that's going to be available on all your podcast directories, direct directories, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. You can also find me on YouTube at KBass Philadelphia. It's the same content that I put on the podcast. You can just watch it in a video format. And uh, check that out and subscribe to that because that's where most of my content is being put out. I'm really trying to make a push to put out a lot more video and audio kind of content like this so that uh, if you're interested in more of these kinds of topics, uh, those are the places that you can find me. And uh, I think that would be great. <laughs> awesome. No, well, thanks again for, for coming. I'll be sure to put that stuff in the show notes so listeners can head over and check out what you're up to. Awesome. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.